Welcome to the world of critical care. Today, we're going to be talking about colloids. Now, this episode will be the first of a series on IV fluids and blood products. So the following episode will be on crystalloids, and then we're going to be talking about packed red blood cells, fresh frozen plasma, platelets, and cryo. Now, the reason I wanted to talk about these products is, to be honest, a bit selfish. I work in a post-operative ICU, and we give these continuously, whether it be for fluid resuscitation, whether it be to help correct coagulopathies. We have patients that just quite simply have you know, low hemoglobin levels. We're replacing blood. And often when I'm training people in our ICU, we give these products so often Often you fail to take a second to sit down and say, okay, why are we doing this now? How's the mechanism of action? What are our concerns? And in particular, I think a lot about this with our different blood products or our fluid resuscitation because many times our order sets are somewhat broad. And so often I have people asking me, well, how fast should we give it? Do we need to warm it? What about our concern? What if we're in a situation where we could do a crystalloid or a colloid. Why are we doing albumin versus lactated ringers? And so I think often if we just start from the basics, the foundation up, you really uncover a lot that even if you've worked with these products for years and years, I feel like there's always something that you learn when you take a little dive into them. And that's what I personally found for myself. And it's actually why I'm starting with colloids. I think colloids often in training, especially in critical care, can be something that is glanced over fairly quickly, in particular because the primary colloid that's given in critical care is albumin. Most people generally understand albumin, and you often understand the difference between albumin versus a crystalloid. But I think when you dig deeper, the mechanism of action behind colloids, specifically albumin, is fascinating. And taking just 10 minutes to understand how effective it is, I think can really help inform people about making decisions and helping people make decisions about, hey, should we be doing a crystalloid in this situation or should we be doing a colloid in this situation? So a colloid, very simply, is just insoluble particles suspended in another substance. Now, it's important in that colloids have what's kind of called two phases or two aspects to them. There's a dispersed phase and a dispersed medium. Now, let's think about an example. A marshmallow is a colloid. The marshmallow is in a foam form. It's a solid medium, the sugar, but it's in a gas phase that makes a foam. Milk is another interesting colloid. So milk is known as an emulsion. So the medium is a liquid and the phase is a liquid. We can also think about this true with an airborne virus. So an airborne virus, a lot of times we think of it as an aerosol. So the medium is a gas, the air, but the phase is a solid. And that's particularly important as we think about this to understand different contexts for colloids that are often given in critical care. Some of the most common colloids are often proteins. 
Albumin's one of the primary ones, but blood products are also colloids. Fresh frozen plasma is a great example. Many of those clotting factors and proteins that we have in plasma are not actually completely soluble in water. And so when you look at that, what would you'd think would be a solution when you start seeing it, you see those particulates suspended in the fluid. And the same is true for albumin. Now, albumin's a little bit different because it actually is just slightly hydrophilic, meaning the way that protein is formed, it actually is water-loving and has some interaction with the water. And so often when, if you look at albumin, it's normally yellow and it looks like a very clear solution. And it does, in fact, go into solution very well, but it is still a colloidal solution. Other common things that can be given in critical care include starch solutions like hydroethyl starch. Um, There's some dextrian solutions that also are known as colloidal solutions. Now, these are commonly volume expanders. Now, they're not given too frequently, and I want today to really pick out albumin. Now, the reason I want to talk about albumin today is because it provides the perfect platform to understand how colloids work in the human body and the critical role they play in regulating our blood pressure. Now, albumin is a unique protein in that roughly it's about 55% of all the proteins found in your vascular space. But interestingly, even though they only account for 55% of all the total proteins, they account for roughly 80 to 90% of oncotic pressure. Now, oncotic pressure is also called colloidal osmotic pressure. Understanding this helps us see into the world of colloids and how they function. So to understand this term, we need to know three things. We need to understand osmotic gradients. We need to understand capillary systems. And we need to briefly touch on the Starling equation. So let's walk through these three things and understand how albumin works in the human body, but specifically that colloidal osmotic pressure. Let's do a brief review of osmosis. We have a U-shaped cylinder with a semi-permeable membrane in the middle at the bottom of the U. Each side initially is filled with water. But on one side, we pour in some salt and we mix it up. What's going to happen? If, the, if water is able to move through that semi-permeable membrane, water is going to move from the place of high water concentration across the membrane over to the saltwater side to create a state of equilibrium. So we often talk about this in terms of our sodium levels with patients and cellular swelling. So, for example, we have a patient who has hydrocephalus. We often would do hypertonic solutions, and so the salt uh, concentrations outside cells are much higher than inside the cell, so the water tends to move from inside the cell to outside the cell. And conversely, we see that with hypodatremia, where we have low sodium levels outside the cell. 
what we can have often is a situation where water starts to move from outside the cell into the cell, causing cellular swelling. Now, interestingly, proteins can induce a similar osmotic effect. So water can often move from places of high water concentration to places of lower water concentration, and protein can actually induce this effect. What's unique about proteins is it's mostly the important part about it is that proteins in the water they're dispersed in tend to displace water. So the displacement effect can actually, in essence, decrease the amount of available water. What this means is that you have water in the extracellular space or in that interstitial space in our capillary beds where the protein concentrations are much lower than the protein concentrations within the vascular space. That water, interestingly, will actually want to move across cell walls and back into the vascular system to try to create a level playing field of protein concentrations, which is quite fascinating because it now takes us to our second point, which is understanding our capillary system. So let's do a brief overview of our capillary system. So the blood's flowing through our arterial system. We have a pretty high pressure within our arterial system. As the blood flows through the arteries, it then goes into the arterioles. Now, this is where we move from the arterioles into our capillary beds. So the capillary bed and the capillary vessels are pretty highly permeable. So in this place, we tend to have a lot of our exchange. So we have oxygen exchange. CO2 is picked up. We have exchange with urea and glucose and uric acid and lactic acid. So much happens in these capillary beds. What's critical to understand, though, is the pressure difference from the arterial side to the venous side. As we move from the artery into the arterial, when we look at the pressure difference from outside those vessels to inside the vessels, there tends to be about roughly a 10 millimeter of mercury pressure difference in the movement from inside the vessel to out. Now this, briefly we have to talk about the Starling equation a little bit. There are two of the more important variables in the Starling equation are what's called hydrostatic pressure, which is the pressure within the vessel against the vessel walls. Think of it as an outward pressure. So when I talk about a plus 10 millimeters of mercury pressure differential outwards, I'm talking about the hydrostatic pressure. Now, colloidal osmotic pressure, or that oncotic pressure, is in direct opposition to hydrostatic pressure. So now we start thinking about that third space outside of the vessels in our capillary beds. That's the pressure pushing into the vessels. That's that colloidal osmotic pressure. Now, what determines that colloidal osmotic pressure? Well, we just talked about it. That is the protein differential. So there's more proteins within the vessels than there are outside of the vessels. 
And the reason for that is because proteins do not easily move across the vessel walls. So paracellular transport does not happen very easily unless they're really small proteins. If a protein though is larger than roughly 3 nanometers, the only way for it to get across is with a transport vesicle. And that does not happen easily. So in general, the proteins within our blood do not move across those uh, capillary vessels very easily. So there's that continuous gradient where the water wants to create an equilibrium. So the oncotic pressure is water wanting to move inside the vessels to create equilibrium for the proteins inside to outside the vessels. Now, conversely, our hydrostatic pressure is the amount of fluid in the vessels pushing against the vessel walls. And that is wanting water to go outside the vessels. Now, on the arterial side, I had mentioned there's roughly a plus 10 pressure differential favoring water moving out of the vessels into that third space, into that capillary bed on the arterial side. As we start to move towards the venous side, in the middle of the capillary beds, that pressure differential is approximately zero. As we move onto the venous side, so we're moving into the venules, now we have, I've, I've, a few different people have different numbers, but somewhere in the approximate range of a negative seven millimeters of mercury pressure difference inside the vessels. What does that mean? That means now on the venous side, the pressure inside is low enough that the hydrostatic pressure is now not as strong as the oncotic pressure pushing in. And so water starts to move back into the venous system. In fact, Looking at different people talking about this, it appears that almost 90% of water that leaves is reaccounted for from the arterial to the venous side. But that oncotic pressure is absolutely critical in driving that pressure gradient differential, and in particular on the venous side. If the protein levels are too low, the oncotic pressure will not be sufficient to allow water to return back into the vascular system. And that's where we can get third spacing. We can get swelling. That's one of the challenges. So when our albumin levels are too low, it's unable to create the appropriate pressure. Now, there are solutions, right? We could increase hydrostatic pressure with crystalloids. We can simply increase the volume there. But ultimately, you're always going to be slightly fighting a losing battle if your oncotic pressure is not sufficient. You're just going to increase swelling. That's one of the challenges with septic shock. In septic shock, we have such increased capillary permeability that those proteins can actually start to move outside the vessels. And because of that, it dramatically affects our oncotic pressure. Now, it is worth mentioning at this point, you will see differences in providers in terms of how they use crystalloids versus colloids. For example, 
There are some patients who uh, their albumin level is perfectly fine, but for volume expansion and often rapid volume expansion, sometimes you might see a colloid favored, whether that just be because of their training, they want to see the response. On occasion, too, you might see a crystalloid used, and then after that, they check and see the response, and then sometimes they might try a colloid just to see the effect. And it's important to know there's not a necessary formula for this. I see this in our, in our ICU regularly for different situations. One provider might use a crystalloid, and then the next one will use a colloid. And it, many times, it's just their preference. There's not a clear indication that says, absolutely, yes, we should use a colloid. I hope this episode was helpful today. I know there was quite a bit of time spent on albumin, but I think in many ways albumin is one of the most common colloids given other than some of our blood products. And it provides just this perfect way to understand these colloid effects. The next episode is going to be on crystalloids, and I think it may end up being two separate episodes because there's quite a bit to get into about crystalloids in terms of some of our hypertonic and hypotonic solutions and really understanding, too, some of the dangers of using too many crystalloids and then some of the special situations when we might administer larger amounts of crystalloids. So I look forward to talking about that. That next episode will probably release on Monday or Tuesday this week. I got a little off schedule. been working on some of my audio settings. I'm hoping that I can start to hone things in a little bit better over the next week or two. I do appreciate feedback. If things sound better, let me know. If there's things that are maybe you think could be tweaked in terms of just the presentation or the length of episodes or if you want more depth, let me know. I really hope this can be a resource for people moving forwards.